and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. I'm David Ward. Joining me this month is the composer Michael Betridge. A very good morning to you, Michael. Good morning. Lovely to be here. How are things over in Manchester? Grey and wet, but hey, what else changes? Well, precisely. Lots of things in the world have changed, but some things stay the same, and, th and that's what we can cling on to. Um, and making her podcast debut, it's the mezzo, Leah Shaw. Hello, Leah. Hello. Lovely to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, and you're up in, in Glasgow. How are things with you up there? Uh, Grey and wet, <laughs> again. <laughs> um, I think, is it clearing up? No, no, it's just not raining, which is why the sky looks brighter. <laughs> Um, now, you know, you're in your final year at the Alexander Gibson Opera School. Um, mm -hmm. to, to kick us off, how is conservatoire life in lockdown? How is, how is studying under these new, uh, this new world? You know, it's odd. Um, you feel a bit like you're living in uncanny valley um, because everything is continuing as it was. You have rehearsals and you have coachings and lessons. Half of them are on Zoom. So you feel, oh, okay, like you wake up and you think, okay, I'm, I'm in, I've got this coaching with this person and I have this class and like these seminars and you realize that they're online so you don't actually have to leave. So you've either geared yourself up to go out of your house for no reason or you're downstairs making tea when in three minutes you have to be online and going. Um, so there's, there are its challenges. Um, but to be honest, I think it's just great to actually be able to be back in a room and making music with people. Um, because over the past few months, it has been really, really tough to kind mm. of feel like you're still doing something um, when you can't really make contact with anyone else in the same way as you would. So it's good to be back. Yeah, it's interesting, this new etiquette, isn't it? Not just the etiquette of doing things online, but as you said, the preparation, you know, before you might get to a rehearsal room a bit early and, and sit yourself down and kind of get ready. And now you sort of think, oh, it's two minutes to go, so I can I can get a biscuit or whatnot, you know, and suddenly you're then flung in. So it's trying to get your head around all, all of these different ways of, of, of making things happen. Um, great, we're going to kick off this month then by focusing on the operatic recovery going on here in the UK. The big news last week was the announcement of the organisations receiving support from the Culture Recovery Fund. They included Classical Opera, Neville Holt Opera and Shadwell Opera. Uh, Leah, from your perspective, do you kind of get a sense that organisations are getting back on their feet? Are you kind of feeling that there's a recovery or a rejuvenation on its way? I'm feeling like there's definitely the want to rejuvenate and that was one thing that I was particularly concerned about is that well we'd have the resources to be able to regenerate but then also we'd have the motivation to do so um, because there's nothing more soul killing than just having to not do things for months and then get back onto it like nothing has ever changed and I think that people are people are hungry they, they want to get going again. They want to start making new things and presenting pieces to people and having audiences back. So hopefully, yes. Yeah, I think what, what I, you know, want to gain the sense for is that obviously artists who want to be back in a, in a theatre performing, you know, none of us uh, ever really wanted to have this career so that we could, we could sing into a, a tiny camera on a, on a, on a laptop. Um, but I, I think from audiences as well, there is really that desire now to get back into the theatre and to have that proper theatrical operatic experience as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think, as Leah was saying, like, there is that hunger for artists and audiences to get back into spaces, make work, to see work, to, you know, be part of that community with opera, with other art forms as well, as long as it's done in a safe way. And I think that is the challenge. 
as well, making sure that a lot of organizations are doing some really great work to ensure the safety of their artists and their audiences. Um, for me, I've, this week has been the week of kind of suddenly loads of calls and loads of conversations, which is really exciting. But I do worry if uh, it's a, a bit too late because there's so many artists, you know, the MU recently published the stats that a third of their membership were considering no longer staying in the industry. And I think whilst this funding is vital and welcome, it's still that process of planning and project planning and that work won't happen for freelancers and artists just yet. It's going to be down the line. And I really hope some, you know, this industry, those people working in it can keep at it until that work occurs so they can get back on their feet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Leah, obviously, we, we said you're still studying. You've got a little while to go until until graduation. I mean, are you going to kind of getting the sense that there are some kind of stokes in the fire that when you finally kind of say goodbye to conservatoire life that, you know, there will be things to kind of go... Go into. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and I think it's just, it's keeping my mind open, I think is the most challenging thing. Because a lot of the time, as as a singer you'll get all of these people coming in and they'll all have opinions on what you should do but very few of them actually listen to then what you also want to do with your own voice um so th there's always that kind of challenge reconciling what you want to do personally what i want to do personally with then what other people see me doing um and for me then the like the road after conservatoire at the moment we're in planning stages for some really exciting work and some exciting collaborations with um up north up in the north of scotland which is really fab um up with atlas arts in sky and creating a new work with my pal rufus elliott um so it's it's much more devised work um and that's very much still in the stages of planning and schedule making and we have funding so it's making sure that we know how to implement it um in the most uh conducive way to creating a piece that actually works in post-covid uk basically well that's that's really interesting you said that and i'm going to come on to the idea of kind of new work kind of being the the future in a, in a moment um before, I just wanted to ask you, Michael, I mean, we're here today covering Leeds, Manchester and Glasgow, so a beautifully non-London-centric uh, panel. Um, I mean, Opera Provision was, was much more kind of scant up, up north than it was kind of down south pre-COVID. Um, I mean, do you kind of get a sense that we're in danger of this only kind of being exacerbated? You know, I think we've had quite a lot of announcements of things going on, I say, kind of in, in, in London way, but it does kind of seem to be an ever-growing fissure, perhaps. Yeah, I think, to be honest, a lot of it's too early to say. Um, and we just kind of have to make sure that we're loud and proud as being in the North and make sure that we are kind of celebrating the work that's going on. I think the challenges with the recovery fund was that the minimum amount was 50K. And that meant small companies, I'm thinking of David, you know, Northern Opera Group, but also kind of Hull Urban Opera Collective and other small but brilliant small opera organizations in the north who are a really important kind of touchstone and uh, kind of space for early career artists to develop their practice fresh out of college for example and if we lose those uh, or those if those organizations and I know you're doing a lot David you're being very busy but if those organizations aren't supported then we're going to lose a lot of that experience for singers who are based in the north who 
also maybe choose to live up here or have to live up here because the costs are lower, for example. So there's a there's a real worry that the lack of support for these organisations, these smaller organisations, will lead to more problems down the line with you know having a diverse range of voices on stage so i'm hoping some of that funding from the big organizations will feed down to the smaller organizations because it's so important as part of the, the great infrastructure we have in this country for opera yeah and i think that's a great point you know it's all very good saying this is the culture recovery fund but what what does recovery look like you know is is it is it keeping big organizations afloat is it is it keeping lights on or is it investing in work is it investing in some of the great initiatives that have been you know kind of going on past that past 18 months that we don't want to see um flattened through 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 this recovery um coming on to some of those uh, performances that have been announced so looking at some of those green shoots um you know opera north have announced a double bill of, of seven deadly sins and aces and galatea very much the uh, covid opera du jour aces and, and galatea with its uh, short running time and short cast um as well as concert performances of fidelio and the royal opera house have a number of live streamed new works and we'll be welcoming audiences back into the Opera House with concert performances of Aria Dante and Falstaff. Um, Michael, these new commissions from the Royal Opera House presents quite a kind of progressive programme, really headlining their recovery. Um, I must say it wasn't quite the programme I was expecting them to, but I'm delighted to see kind of the, the, uh, the direction of travel that they're, that they're going into kickstart um, work being on the stage again. Going back to what Leah was saying earlier, might this be a longer-term positive effect of, of COVID that companies are thinking now about programming new, more relevant, more flexible works um, to respond to this kind of new environment? Is this something that actually might, certainly from a composer's perspective, be, be quite a positive outcome of, of what's been going on? I think the Royal Opera House's programming is fantastic in the sense that they had this, what they had the opportunity to say, right, it's not a reset, but in a way, right, we can present only a few things, smaller scale things, what are we gonna say with our program? And what I read into that is they are celebrating the wide range of talent we have in this country. And we know, cause you've talked about this on the podcast before David, but, and we know this in the industry that we are working hard, but we could be working harder at amplifying a wider range of voices. I think this program looks exceptional. I mean, Hannah Kendall is a brilliant composer. Um, and there's some brilliant, brilliant composers on the bill as well. Um, and yeah, I think hopefully, I really hope the Rolock House goes right. Well, this is the way we're going to start post COVID, and let's hope that continues as well because it, it looks great. I wish I could get down to see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ian O have also announced today, that's uh, Thursday, that they're going to be performing John Adams' El Nino in the Coliseum for live audiences on the 27th and 28th of November. So some, some more good news coming from the Coliseum. Um, now, Leah, you are um, uh, an American by, uh, by birth. Um, I mean, I think we, we don't often cover the, the US scene, but I know it's been incredibly difficult there. I mean, the headline, obviously, is, is the Met being closed until next summer, or the earliest, but actually there's very, very little kind of going on over there in, in the States. I mean, what are you kind of picking up of the, the opera landscape currently over the, the Atlantic? I mean, what, what are the kind of the, the feelings there? I mean, it's really hard to say at the moment, I think because everyone is kind of running around in, in so many different mindsets about the election. So there's that, there's that stress that's going on at the moment. But um, from folks that I follow, um, and I'm kind of like keeping my ear on the ground to that sort of stuff. So Janae Bridges, for example, um, 
they're talking a lot about kind of similar to the UK taking this time to create new work since they can't do the larger scale works at the moment because it's just not feasible with COVID restrictions, social distancing and everything. Um, they're taking that opportunity to either do concert performances of things or to just say, okay, you know what, let's just make something new. Um, and bringing the audience into that process, um, which I think has been quite effective. So, I mean, who, who knows what will happen after 2021 because I think with with the Met closed that's a lot of people kind of looking with a bit of cynicism at the American opera scene um but I have a lot of hope for smaller artists when it comes to that and how they'll make the most of this kind of falling down of old traditions when it comes to the American opera scene yeah I mean we're certainly seeing again over in the UK those artists that can be flexible um, that can adapt to these kind of new ways of working and look at things in different ways uh, seem to be doing a lot more than those that struggle to comprehend an opera world that isn't a big Verdi opera with a massive orchestra. You know, we, we've got to think a bit, a bit differently. I think a really interesting point there as well, you know, who leads the future? You know, you mentioned there about kind of audiences kind of being part of that, of that, that discussion. I think we often forget that audiences um, exist. Um, and, you know, as an artistic director myself, I love programming whatever the hell I want, but um, you've got to... <laughs> You've got to remember that those audiences there as well absolutely have to, to, to play a part. Um, one of the recent bright spots um, has been the launch of a new cross-border touring company, Ulster Touring Opera. Earlier this week, I spoke with our artistic director, Davith Hall-Williams. So you've just launched the company. Um, an interesting time to be launching a new opera company in the middle of a, a global pandemic. Yeah, it's an interesting time to start an opera company in the middle of a pandemic, but we have a lot of plans for what we're going to do with the future. And we're really excited to make public all of these interesting projects that we have live at the moment. So we're a brand new cross-border touring opera company on the island of Ireland, focusing on Ulster. So of the nine counties that form Ulster, six are Northern Ireland and three, Cavan, Monaghan and Donegal are in the Republic of Ireland. And the scope of our company is to create a regular touring network of small and medium venues across the whole of the province. So listeners will probably be familiar with Northern Ireland Opera and Wexford. Um, I mean, what is the opera landscape like in Ireland more broadly? You know, are there pockets of activity going on? You know, and where does Ulster Touring Opera fit into what else is, is going on in Ireland? Well, there's a really exciting um, community of opera companies on the island of Ireland at the moment. Um, there's, as you say, there's big national companies, there's some wonderful festival organisations, there's smaller companies which do work intermittently. Um, and there has been cross-border touring in the past. Um, however, that has been intermittent. And what we thought when we started looking at forming a new company was that we would have a conversation with those venues and see if a regular touring network might be of interest to them. Uh, and it turns out that we had an overwhelmingly positive response from those venues across the province of Ulster. And I'm a firm believer that it is regularity, which is a key to building an audience. And that's really important. There are audiences out there. We want to create new audiences for opera. But they just need to know that once a year, this is the time to go to the opera once or twice. Either in a local venue of an excellent standard and fully staged. So that was the first kind of set of conversations that we had. And it really gave us a sense of, and the venues, a sense of ownership over this project, which is really important. Um, and of course, the pandemic has had a huge impact in all these companies across the island of Ireland, the family of opera companies over here. Um, and everyone's been looking at different ways in which they can adapt to that. And there's some really exciting projects that everyone's done. And we as a company were really lucky 
to have started work on immersive technology and opera. Now, right at the beginning of the year, we applied for a Arts Council Creative Industries seed fund, uh, and we were successful with that. And so we're working with Centreal, which is a Belfast-based software company, and Volograms, which is a volumetric studio in Dublin, to create augmented reality opera. Now, I love AR, so I'm, I'm very excited about this. Um, for someone who doesn't really know much about it, just very briefly tell us what what does it mean from an opera context? You know, what is an AR opera going to look like? And why should people be excited about experiencing opera in this new way? Sure. Well, as I say, access is at the heart of the company. And so we do really strongly and passionately believe in work in venues. And we actually have a tour booked for 2021 and we can, we'll be giving a few more details at the beginning of next year for that. But also, it is exciting to work in immersive technology. It is a string to the bow, um, which everyone will need, I think, in the future, in terms of being able to do things outside of theatres. Now, what augmented reality is able to do is it is able to create an opera in your own home so that your living room becomes the set of the opera. The way that you experience that would be through either a smartphone or a tablet, which you would hold up and you would view, and the performers would appear to be in your living room with you but you could actually walk around them in 365 degrees. We're also working on something called spatial audio so that as you move, the sound mimics acoustic sound. So as you move closer and further away and between singers, then actually the sound moves with you, which really helps that immersive immersion of it. Um, there's been some really interesting work in this already in this field. Um, Queensland Opera did some work in 2019 in this field. Um, but we want to kind of take it that next step forward uh, and see what we can do with it. Uh, our first project is based on Don Giovanni and the final scene between Don Giovanni and the Commendatore before he dies. Um, and that's, uh, it's a really, uh, we chose that scene because it is a combination. It, it is the unreal interrupting the real. De Ponte's operas were, all three of them were naturalistic settings. This is really one of the only moments where the supernatural interrupts the real in De Ponte's writing and, and in Mozart's kind of trilogy of those. Um, and so for us, it was a really exciting point where we can have the Commendatore emerging through someone's wall. We can actually drag Don Giovanni down through someone's living room carpet at the end of the scene as he's brought down into hell. Now, this is a really exciting journey. We're just at the beginning of this journey, but it's great to have had the support to be able to start to do this work. Oh, it sounds brilliant. I, I, I can't wait to, uh, to have that in my living room. It's going to be fantastic. Um, so that is very much one side of the company. Obviously, the other side is the live in theatres touring work. I mean, is there a particular sort of bent to the repertoire or the way that you'll be staging the productions? I mean, is, is there something particular about what audiences can expect to see from an Ulster touring opera live theatre production? Uh, yes, I think that it's really important that we uh, build our audiences and present some of the world's best loved operas. And so I think initially we'll be looking at core repertoire. So um, operas which are presented very, fairly regularly across the globe, uh, which can be seen in local venues. Um, and I, you know, I was really impacted when I was a, a student in Aberystwyth and Midwell's opera would bring Madame Butterfly to the Arts Centre and I would see it and I think, fantastic, these are amazing singers standing in front of me in the same room and we're experiencing this communal performance um, and I think 
that's really exciting. That's that's the essence of what we kind of want to create over here. Um, given the size of the venues, there there may be some uh, reduction of cast of instrumentalists. Um, there may be we may use some of those amazing kind of chamber orchestrations which exist for these um, pieces based on some of the previous amazing work of reductions that people have done in the past. Um, but we want to bring the kind of full impact of opera, the, the power that we know the art form can have, bring that into local venues and make sure that the local venues offerings are as diverse across art forms as possible. That's, that's what we really want to nurture. And the, the, the other thing is we want to offer kind of exciting artists from across the island of Ireland. We want to look at artists who maybe have um, covered roles in the past at larger houses who want to start to interpret them for themselves in the role as an of themselves as an artist. Uh, that's a really exciting process. I work with Guildhall as well in London and there's been some really exciting work there in terms of emerging singers and so it's nice to bring some of that work over to the island of Ireland as well. So it's we've got a lot planned. It's a really exciting time. We just we just work with venues and taking it step by step. You know, we, 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 I've been talking to the venues throughout lockdown so that we know where we stand at all points. And they're part of the decision-making process for us to touring opera. So this touring across the border is obviously an important part of the company. I mean, are you in a position to know what that means on a practical basis when the 31st of December comes along and we're in a... Um, a Brexit world. I mean, do, do you know kind of what that means for, for a company trying to cross that that border between Northern Ireland and the Republic? We are keeping close eyes and tabs on the situation as it unfolds. Um, it may involve um, a degree of sponsorship um, that we're not we're, we're still looking at. Uh, we know that if um, UK companies want to employ uh, full-time employees from Europe, there may be the possibility of visas coming in. How that affects freelance workers, we're still looking at. Um, and we're just kind of getting up to date. We've got some amazing organizations here. Um, we've got um, Arts and Business, we've got Thrive, which is an used to be Audiences NI. They're amazing in terms of being able to communicate with us. We've got Theatre Forum in the Republic of Ireland, which is an amazing organization which spans a, a huge breadth of companies and is really active in the arts at the moment. So all of us together as a community are taking our steps through this. So no individual organization is alone in discovering what we're going to do in the challenges ahead. Um, and I would say, you know, Brexit is one of the challenges. We face a lot, you know, a lot of other challenges as well. But we just take it step by step as we get closer. Um, and I think one of our, the, the fact that our tour is towards the end of 2021 is another kind of fail safe in terms of making sure that everything is as it should be to make sure that we can do this regularly. And that's really, really important because we want to build an expertise as a company in doing what we do so that it is ring fenced and safeguarded. Yeah. Well, that sounds fantastic to hear. Um, finally, you mentioned the tour is looking towards the end of 2021. When can people start watching your work, the AR work or the live work? And when might you be in a position to reveal some of those touring plans perhaps? So, um, so early next year uh, will be a really interesting time for the company. I think at that point we'll know where we stand in terms of what we're going to do in the autumn. Um, so we'll be able to give some more details of that. We it's it's killing me. We have a cast. We have a musical director. We have venues booked. We have uh, rehearsal rooms booked. It's all there. We want to share it, but we just need a little bit more time for that. Um, and in terms of the augmented reality, uh, we're going to be working on, we've done our first stage, which is we've recorded the five minutes of audio. 
uh, had a really exciting session in, Lon in London and we've got some pictures online people can see as well. Um, and I would really rec also recommend Volagram's Twitter feed because you can see kind of where we're going and what we might be able to do with the, um, those volumetric images. Um, we then, we'll need to take them to Dublin to do uh, green screen recordings where they will be in a green screen box with 12 cameras around them where we'll film them. And then we go into post-production with um, Centreal in Belfast. So that whole process should take us into next spring. So we can start to explore that then. Um, we've got some other, hopefully some exciting news as well coming up uh, fairly soon for what we might do next year. But the main, the main thrust of it is stay tuned. Keep, you know, keep watching our social medias and we will, we will get news out as soon as we can. As we discussed in our last pod, it's not only main stage work that's been affected by the pandemic, but the terrific work that companies and artists do with local communities. That hasn't stopped some great projects going ahead this summer, however, including ENO's Lockdown Arias, Iford's Gingerbread Project, and English Touring Opera's soon to launch Shh, We Have a Plan, which I am really looking forward to. Um, Michael, you've been rehearsing, devising, singing in car parks during lockdown. Um, how have you found this experience? You know, have people been able to adapt to online? And I suppose the big question is, is, it, is this way of working sustainable? Uh, a lot of big questions for you there. I think for me personally, uh, first of all, I'm absolutely amazed by the, um, just how bold a lot of companies have been. Um, English Touring Opera, I have to shout out to them because they were phenomenal when lockdown happened. They paid all their artists um, fully with the cancellation at all, including education artists like myself who were due to be working for them. Um, not only that, have they been creating phenomenal resources and projects like their Singing with Opera singer kind of um, online, uh, online content during uh, lockdown, which has been so useful. I've been sharing with all my colleagues and friends. But for me, it's, you know, I think a lot of us are getting this Zoom fatigue, even though, you know, we've been doing this months now. So I am looking for the companies and the organisations who are being experimental with their digital content, but also thinking really outside the box. What, what can you do? What can you do that is socially distanced and small scale, intimate things and using resources in that way? Um, a big thing, thing for me as well is that I'm getting into podcasts as well, you know, and well, we're on a podcast, so how meta. But um, the fact that sometimes listening without looking is really interesting. And I would love to see more of exploring what opera can be purely, obviously we think about it, music and sound, and we listen to it, but what ways can we innovate opera just using kind of headphones and um, just listening without it being a recording of an opera? That's what I'm curious to see. But... Um, yeah, the work that's been going on digitally is just astounding. And I'm, you know, really excited about what people are going to produce next. I think there have been a couple of podcast operas, actually. Um, so it might be worth trying to trying to dig some of those out. I can't speak to their um, success or kind of uh, artistic merits, but I'm pretty sure there have been, there have been some um, trial and errors in, in, that, in that field. Um, we had some really interesting stats coming out of the audience agency recently, which showed that opera audiences were the most likely to engage with online content, which uh, I must say it wasn't what I was expecting to hear, but clearly opera audiences have been um, starved of, of going to the, to the theatre and they've been the most likely audience to go and turn to stuff online. Um, I mean, Leah, what's, what's your experience been with consuming opera online during lockdown? I, I don't know about you, but for me, and I've said this before, it still seems in its very early stages of development finding its feet digitally 
Absolutely. I think there's nothing that can really replace the experience of being in a venue, obviously, and seeing and hearing all of this spectacle live. Um, but I do think that it's it's been invaluable for people to be able to look back on productions that have either they are being live streamed or they've been recorded in the past. Um, what was it? The one that I watched recently, um, Getting in the Spooky Mood with Opera North, Turn of the Screw, has been incredible. I think... Um, it's just a wonderful way to get more people involved and get more people exposed to the opera in, in a way that is fully consensual, that they know what they're getting into. They can, they can see kind of a teaser of what it is before they get there. So they are less likely to be overwhelmed by the whole thing. Um, I know it's been a lifeline for me personally um, and being able to kind of still experience the art that I'm training to do and to kind of see exactly how magical it can actually be and then using that to kind of figure out what it can be in the future. I mean I think even pre pre-COVID I think we were seeing that conservatoires are doing a, a little bit more work preparing singers for camera and certainly so many more productions were getting filmed and, and distributed. I mean do you kind of feel that uh, as, as a student you've been kind of prepared for this sort of life on on camera or is it again something that we're just going to have to really get more into the the training manuals kind of working for the screen i think it's something that was starting to be kind of noticed and started to be talked about when it came to our training but i think that after all of this we really have noticed how important it is how to act for the screen um how to be as engaging on like through the screen as you are on a stage, how acting close up varies from acting far away. Um, I think that's all very important. And I think people are really realizing how different it is to act, to act virtually than to be acting in person. Yeah, well, we're just about to make our first uh, film, a version of Pauline Vito's Cinderella. Um, so getting getting the singers used to kind of having their faces, you know, this big on a on a screen rather than many miles away on a stage, I think is going to be one of the interesting um, learning points of this of this project, but quite an exciting one. Um, looking at kind of some of that that digital um, and content content made for screen, I don't know if either of you caught Bryony Kimming's Opera Mums on BBC Four recently. Um, theatre performance artist Bryony Kimmings was introduced to, to opera and she made a new 15-minute operetta based on uh, the, the lives of single mothers and it was performed on stage and then filmed for BBC Four. Um, I mean, one of the great things I think they did there was uh, they had uh, subtitles, but they weren't just sort of on a line across the bottom of the screen. They were sort of integrated into the action, you know, they kind of came and went. There was emphasis in the subtitles when particular words were important. Um, it's, I think it's just little things like that that I think opera just needs to be a bit more free to play around with you know i think there, there is definitely a place for staged operas to be filmed and for us to see them but how does that turn into a, a an experience for screen i still think there are lots of things to play around with but there are some really good things good things coming out um i think one of the big things that's been uh, uh, launched recently grange park opera put online their um uh, a feast in the time of plague and um, so definitely a uh, very important new work to, to to check out online Sticking with the digital theme, the virtual opera project's L'Enfant de Sautelège will premiere on the 16th of November. Last month, I spoke to the film's director, Rachel Hewer, so do catch up with last month's pod to hear more about it. Um, and Leah, I understand that uh, one of your projects for next year is going to be L'Enfant. 
Um, are you, uh, have you started preparations for that? Will you be tuning into to the Vopera project? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that piece. It's a wonderful opera. Um, just so bright and colorful and really, really evocative of Colette's work. Um, because Colette and Ravel had such a close working relationship. So I, I will definitely be tuning into their production to see what it looks like. And I've already got the score. I'm n- neck deep in it, basically, is what I like to say. So, Yeah, good. Learning new things, keeping busy. That's, that's the case. Earlier this week, I sat down with two of the founding directors of Opera UK to talk more about this new project. Emily Gottlieb, Chief Executive of the National Opera Studio, who you'll hear speaking first, and Genevieve Ragu, Artistic Director of Inter Opera. If we could start with the very simple question, please. What is Opera UK? Opera UK is launching um, today, I believe, uh, World Opera Day. And um, we're aiming to become the sector support organisation for opera in the UK. Uh, so as we launch, we're starting to build a membership uh, for individuals, that's professionals working in opera, um, opera companies, large and small, and anyone who is professionally involved with opera in the UK. Um, the intention is to become a sector support organisation that um, brings all these people together and supports the sector. I mean, people will be very familiar with something like Opera America, uh, which is you know a very, a very big, important organisation over there. I mean, why do you think there hasn't been something like this in the UK before? had lots of discussions about this um, and it has become quite clear that there has been a great will over the last few years to make something like this happen. Uh, I think there's enormous support from across the opera industry um, and uh, to be honest I'm, I'm not sure that it's anything other than uh, a, a sort of the time has become really quite obviously right. Um, I mean in some ways it's a, it's a really tricky time of course, it's very tricky for freelancers, it's very tricky for organisations, everyone's going through uh, a difficult uh, time with COVID and um, everything that's happening in the kind of um, in in Europe as well Um, but I think that it has become very clear in recent um, months and uh, certainly years actually that the collaborative working collective responses advocacy for our sector um, needs to be done by our sector and not just the organizations that are very successfully advocating for their own sectors elsewhere that we might be we will certainly be affiliated with such as the association of british orchestras and freelance that make theatre work and, and so on and so forth um, but there has there's no collective voice for opera in the uk at the moment and i think that that there is a, a now a growing Um, understanding and agreement that this is really the right thing to be doing at the right time. And we're very delighted that we've got so many um, opera companies that have already agreed to become company founders, and we're going to start growing the individual membership from today. And I think we should also add, um, you know, we all know that this has been an extremely challenging year, particularly so for um, live performance industries, of which opera, of course, is one, and an art form that's rooted in singing, where we face, of course, a lot of restrictions at the moment. So, yes, it's been challenging. So if there were ever a time for us to collaborate and communicate as an industry, it's now. And Opera UK will help to facilitate that. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is it, calling us all to be so much more creative, I think, and to um, be much more open to adapting and to change. So we're really interested in exploring how opera might be able to do that too. Mm. And there's another thing, which is that I think uh, um, uh, for some time, 
it's been clear that the that larger companies and smaller companies and individuals have sometimes struggled to talk to one another on a kind of level playing field. And what we really want to do is ensure that the voices of individuals, of freelancers, of the small companies that are kind of so creative and producing so much interesting work uh, really get this kind of same level playing field of, of talking space and, and ideas as the the larger companies who are of course very very much going to need the smaller voices from within the sector and with and of course outside the sector so i i think um, there's great will from so many people that we've all been talking to um direct us directors and um, in the last sort of few months um so much will from around the, the sector to make this really work that it's it's been fantastic so the kind of support that's already there um, will hopefully then come back and be able to support those people who have supported us uh, so far. You mentioned um, a moment ago, Emily, about organisations like um, the Society of London Theatres, UK Theatre, that really kicked up a lot of fuss over the summer, really making the case for theatre. I mean, do you think opera has um, missed out by not having that kind of voice to advocate for the sector during this this time? Actually, I, I I don't. I mean, you, there's probably two different answers to this question. You know, to some extent, the answer would be yes, but to some extent, the answer is that actually combining with the theatre organisations that are so have been around for a very long time and are so adept at making the case for theatre, you know, there really isn't a great deal of difference between a uh, a big opera house and a big theatre in central London, for example, or uh, smaller regional theatres who support both opera and um, music theatre and straight theatre. So I think that, that combining with the theatre um, organisations is a, is a fantastic thing. I think had we had a an opera organisation that was responsive and and supporting the sector at that time we might have been able to make a, a slightly different uh, maybe maybe more sort of positive case for all of the kind of creative things that are going on because of course one of the things that opera often suffers from is this kind of um, image problem and and actually we know that there are so many ways of countering that image there is a huge amount of diversity there is a huge amount of inclusion there is a huge amount of of small voices that are, um, are, are really doing incredible work on the absolute shoes um, but opera tends to kind of only get sort of bashed about for, for, for sort of seeming to be a posh opera. And I do think that that is where a, 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 an organisation that can kind of draw the sector together could be a really strong voice for the industry. And that's something we want to do. You know, we want to be really connecting the sector and we'll, we're aiming to do that through trying to facilitate discussions um by actually having kind of research that we will undertake as well you know across the sector but also with individuals within organizations where we can really try and learn ourselves about what what, what a sector support organization needs to be and that's what we're going to be doing first for the first six months we're going to be really asking a lot of questions to find out what opera uk could and should be um, for the industry and over time, we're hoping Opera UK can also kind of act as a bit of a virtual hub too, um, housing a lot of resources for the whole sector, being able to share useful information, announcements, practical resources as well to try and make working in this sector just that little bit easier. 
Yeah, it's worth saying also that, I mean, Opera America has obviously been sort of a probably quite a um, big influence on the way that we have sort of um, started to go about this work. We have um, consciously not wanted to set up something that is a um, an organisation where anything is imposed on the, on, the mem- on the sector, on the membership, because we're very aware that whilst we're a group of seven directors who've come together because we're all passionate about this and want to um, make something work quickly. Um, we are under no illusions that that a the directorate may well change depending on the membership, and it feels right to to start by asking the membership what it wants rather than coming kind of at it as on a top down approach. So you've mentioned the idea is is to try and get people from across the sector in, involved in the organisation. I mean, I mean Genevieve, what does Alex Beard, you know, chief executive of the Royal Opera House, have in common with a freelance lighting technician in Inverness. I mean, what what is it that actually <laughs> Opera UK brings people to together for? What how you know how are we joined together in that way? Well, you know what? Wouldn't that be exciting to find out? <laughs> um, I think it's just it's so important for us to be connected and to celebrate. Um, everything and everyone who works in this sector and to see where the commonalities are, to see where we're different, to see how we could be collaborating, connecting in new ways to be more innovative. So we absolutely, we need, we need individuals, be they freelancers or employees to get involved. We need small organisations, large organisations from not just London, but across the UK involved and their trustees, very importantly as well. Um, to anyone working in opera, because of course, you know, if we're going to, you know, we're striving to build this uh, responsive sector support organisation, um, which represents really effectively what opera looks like in this country in all its wonderful facets, from opera in a, a you know festival um, context out in the countryside to opera in a pub to opera in our greatest theatres, opera on tour, opera in all its wonderful forms, you know, and to have a space where we can bring all of that together to celebrate it and debate it as well. Um, that doesn't exist yet, and that's something that we think is needed. So that's yeah. what Opera UK is hopefully going to do. And to add to that um, as well, David, I think your question is really um, very interesting because, of course, um, whilst perhaps your idea of lighting technician in Inverness and, and Alex Beard, Chief Executive of the Royal Opera House, may not um, be able to necessarily get in a room together um, on a regular basis, there is no question that these uh, voices from across the sector are, are um, make each other's work much more tangible and um, and creative. The the opera, you know, the big building-based organisations, especially in central cities at the moment, are undergoing quite a crisis. And it is we all know that it's very difficult during the, the pandemic in particular. Um, those houses will need to respond um, in an innovative way to the changes that are being forced on their on the industry and on our lives. And those smaller, um, more creative voices from people perhaps who are used to working in really different environments and have something to offer. This is what this is the kind of thing that we think is kind of is, is really exciting, basically. So and we also think that opera, you know, we have a way to, to go. It, the, the industry has to change. Um, we as a, a whole sector uh, are not just a kind of this 
group of museum pieces that are going to be presented in a proscenium arch theatre for the next hundred years. That just simply isn't the case. That isn't the industry anymore. Um, to find those creative voices, the opera makers of tomorrow, you know, what, what happens with digital, all of these different things, we have to connect people in order to have those voices that can be creative and create the next generation of, of, of opera in this country. So you said that you're going to start off with a, a bit of a kind of a consultation period um, that you're going to let the members kind of decide what happens. I mean, do you have any idea at this stage what, what success kind of looks like? You know, what do you hope Opera UK is doing in 12 months, 18 months? You know, kind of, do you have an idea of what that kind of vision is or the output is? Yeah, I mean, I think the the short answer is yes of course I mean we you know there's a, a lot of people that we've all been talking to that have already kind of inputted some sort of ideas about what it could look like and I think the Opera American model is is a really good one you know resource sharing um, job posting advocating for the sector um, but the fact is that we don't want to start with you know the the idea that that um, we know what the sector needs because we just don't think that's the right way of, of going about it so whilst it would be um, not true to say that we didn't have ideas about what we want to do with Opera UK of course we do um, but we want the voices of the membership and of the sector to come through very very strongly in order to help us shape that um, but I, I would still say Opera America is probably our closest model for something that we um, think could could really um, work, bearing in, uh, also bearing in mind that we're a much, much smaller sector in the UK. So it will have to be very different. Final question. How do people get involved? What can people do? Well, um, we've launched today, World Opera Day, and we have a lovely new website to uh, accompany our launch, which is operauk.net. Um, and on that website, uh, it's, there's a little bit of information about what our aspirations are. And it's all really clear on there about how you can become a founder member. There is a short survey where we're just collecting a little bit of information and where we're asking a few questions as well, which will help, again, um, us try and understand from a very early point what the initial needs potentially are of our founder members for an opera sector support organization. Um, and we've decided to make our membership a pay, a pay what you can um, structure with a three pound starting point. So it's you know, really affordable. And we know how challenging a time, as I've already said earlier, that this has been over recent months. So we didn't want um, money to be a barrier to access this opportunity because as you know, Emily said, it's just so important that we hear from as many people, as many voices as possible. So really simple, short little survey on our website, simple PayPal button that you can just press to make your three pounds or more, if you wish, <laughs> um, uh, contribution. Um, and that will support a six month founder membership fee where you can be directly involved in all our discussions and this consultation period to help shape what Opera UK might become. Yeah, it's worth saying that that, that £3 um, membership fee was really uh, something that was incredibly important to us. We didn't want there to be um, and barriers to access or membership at all. Um, we've got a number of opera companies that have seed, helped to seed fund the, um, our work. And of course, we're all working on a volunteer basis um, at the moment. Uh, so there is uh, all this information is on our website, but we really do want to hear from voices across the professional opera sector so that we can help shape this together. Leah, so 
Opera UK is here to make connections across the, the sector to respond to this constantly changing landscape. You know, is this the type of thing that perhaps has been missing from the UK opera sector? I know Opera America is, is a huge kind of uh, sector support organization over there. Do you, do you kind of feel as though you're, you're in need of kind of something like this here in the UK? I think the more communication that we can have across the country in terms of the opera, opera and the whole thing would be really good. I think I think it's a wonderful thing to be able to start these conversations and to start having them in a way that it's not London versus the rest of the UK or the North versus the South, um, as it can so often seem, um, that everyone's kind of in this together. And to have experiences from folks from all over would be really wonderful to hear from. Now, Michael, you know, whether it's through Opera UK or, or whoever it might be, you know, do you think you, we have seen the sector kind of coming together in, in new ways over the past few months? You know, do you think that this is something that we just kind of need to be better at kind of generally going forward? Yeah, I think opera is a, a phenomenal art form and it's for everything from the Royal Opera House down to that company that might just be one person at the helm making one person shows. There's such a range within opera and I think that's the challenge our sector faces. You know, I spoke earlier about, we talked about the North. We're the North Northern contingent today on this podcast. And, you know, lots of great work is going on here. And I think Opera UK's, I guess their challenge, you know, there's some phenomenal people involved in that organisation. I'm really looking forward to what they achieve. But the challenge is to really bring, you know, the big, big voices into the room with the conversation with the voices of the individuals as well. And, I have great faith in what they're going to achieve, but it is a massive challenge. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll give you my hot take, which you're very uh, welcome to disagree with, um, which is that I think we see the UK theatre sector as a much more joined up kind of, uh, of entity. I think what we have in the UK opera sector is that those big companies do operate in a sort of a different world to, to kind of the rest of the organisations. You know, we see Opera Europa, which is the European group of opera companies. Um, it's a very big organization. All of the big UK opera companies are signed up. They go to all of the conferences. Um, and I think that's because that's the world they inhabit. They're getting singers from all over the world, all over Europe, creatives from all over the world, um, co-productions with, with companies, you know, internationally. Um, in a way, you know, the Royal Opera House has a lot more in common with, um, I don't know, the Royal Danish Opera or the Met than it does with Northern Opera Group or Streetwise, Streetwise Opera. Um, I mean, I think COVID is something that will change that. I think the big Brexit uh, word is another thing that will, will kind of change that. But that's perhaps been one of the challenges we've had to date, that actually some of those big companies don't have a lot in common with what's going on on the ground. I don't know if that's something that either of you would agree with. Yeah, I, I do. I think there is a, there's something around the fact we talk about the big six quite a lot, don't we, here in the UK? And where are the companies that sit immediately below that? There's kind of a, there's kind of a dividing line, isn't there? The big six, and then there's the companies um, beneath. But I think that hierarchy is changing. We've seen with COVID how small and medium-sized companies, despite potentially lack of funding, have been so dynamic and so exciting and produce content very quickly. You know, I mentioned Eiffel Arts earlier, for example. You know, there's some brilliant stuff going on. So I think those big, big companies that do have the ogre of Brexit hanging above them and having these massive venues to run, 
they're going to have to, or I hope they will look to medium and smaller size organization for ideas and support because we're the ones sometimes taking more of the risk because we can, we can afford to. Um, so silver linings of COVID, uh, COVID and the very few silver linings potentially of Brexit. Yes, I mean, I think that's another one of the things that's been wonderful to see about the Royal Opera House's season. You know, not only have they been commissioning new works, but the singers performing those by necessity have been their young artists or have been British singers. Um, and again, I don't necessarily need to beat the, the kind of the British drum, but the, you know, there is something of those companies always always looking for singers overseas, or rather than using a, a local understudy, they'll fly someone in at the last minute. You know, I just think if again those few silver linings that, that, that there might be, we might be more inclined to turn our attention to the talent that we have at, at home and find the opportunities for, for them to, to, to thrive. And again, hopefully that will help kind of join up, join up the sector as well. The Royal Philharmonic Society have announced the nominees for this year's RPS Awards. The opera category nominees are Opera Holland Park, Scottish Opera and Garsington Opera. And all three of the nominated singers are familiar faces to opera audiences, Lisa Davidson, Natalia Romagnu and Nikki Spence. And we have a nominee with us on the podcast. Uh, Michael, fill us in. Um, so yes, I was amazed, uh, absolutely amazed to, uh, it was announced that Across the Sky, so a community opera that I collaborated on, I was composer on last year for the Cheltenham Music Festival, has been shortlisted in the impact category, which is, yeah, it was really touching and really amazing because it was such a wonderful project and a really, really impactful project as well on the communities we worked with. So yeah, really chuffed by that. Well, congratulations. Are you trying to pretend that awards don't mean anything or are you just kind of going full out on the glory? Um, the one frustrating thing I would say is because of COVID, there's no award ceremony this year in person. So I don't get to put on my, you know, tux and go down to London. Um, but no, I, I am, I'm basking in the glory, but I'm doing that with a lot of phenomenal people who help bring that work together. And not just the creative, the professional creatives, but the communities who we really worked hard and really engaged with as part of bringing that project together. You know, it was an opera created from scratch over a course of nine months. So they came with us and they are hopefully basking in that glory as well. And as we've spoken about today, it's, it's so important not only to celebrate those great main stage works, but all of those projects done with, with amateur singers and the community as well. You know, it's all, it's all part of the same thing. So I think it's great to be celebrating these things in one virtual awards ceremony. If you're listening to today's pod on the day of its release, and why would you not be? It is Sunday, the 25th of October, and it is World Opera Day, which I quote, is designed to show and celebrate the value of the art form. Hip, hip, hooray. Um, so I've asked each of our panelists to kind of think of a moment, a production, an experience that you think kind of truly sums up what makes opera so great. Um, and I'm going to pick on Leah first. It's World Opera Day. Uh, give us something to celebrate. I mean, when you asked me this question, actually, I was kind of taken aback just because there's so many moments that to me kind of really represent opera and represent why I love it. That's quite hard to choose just one. Um, and they all seems to be on reflection really small moments so it's either the moments in a production that i just did well just did in january um of the rape of lucretia and we had a beautiful set and part of it was this hole in the floor that could be closed and opened up it was like tiling um 
and it was a big technical challenge but i just remember before every single performance we had a call for 15 minutes of just okay put the floor together and take it apart again and put it back together and take it apart again um and really the magic behind all of what the audience was seeing um and putting it all together to me that is one of the most powerful parts of opera when you walk onto a stage and the set's still being built and all of the technical advisors are still running around with their walkie-talkies and going, okay, no, lower the flies, like raise them, nobody move into this space right now. Um, and you're still trying to figure out everything with the orchestra. To me, that's one of the most kind of energetically alive parts of making opera happen and being a part of it is because you feel like you're, well, you're part of that universe. Our job as artists being to create something that before the production did not exist. And after that production closes, it also won't exist. It's gone. It's done. That universe is closed and you're, it's sent off. Um, but to be there in the midst of it all, to be there in the muck, as it were, to me, that's what really represents opera. And then to have people at the end of the day, at the end of the performance, come up to you and say, oh, my God, that was incredible. I've never seen anything like it. Like, it all just looks so easy, and you think, you have no idea of what's gone into this, but it, I'm glad that it shows, and that it, all of that hard work paid off. And that, to me, is what opera means. That's what it is. Yeah, that's a great answer. The, the magic in the chaos, I think, is a great... Um, I think really interesting there as well, what you said about, you know, you have the performance, and then it kind of goes, and I think maybe that is something that we do lose with everything kind of being filmed and whatnot now. There's something about that ephemerality. Um, you were there, you saw it, you know, we hear about all these great Woodstock or whatever it might be, you know, I was there, you know, um, we kind of lose a bit of that nowadays because it's all, you, we can all kind of watch it, watch it back, but that actually kind of being there and it, it then going is, is, is something that you, you can't replicate. Um, a lovely answer, Michael, same to you. I mean, again, like Leo, when this question was asked, I thought, my goodness, there's so much, just so much to talk about. You could do a whole podcast just on this, David. Um, <laughs> we might do if we get into deepest, darkest, you know, lockdown again. We'll just do a, a have a lovely time celebrating opera pod. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Yeah, <laughs> I thoroughly approve. Um, I've been really fortunate. Like for me, opera is about communication, and whether that is, you know, we're talking about the classics, and it's a phenomenal aria. Uh, by a phenomenal singer kind of conveying emotion with that brilliant, brilliant voice that only opera singers can do, that projection, that emotion, that rawness. Um, that's so important to me and that's why I'm involved in this industry. But it goes through from an audience engagement for that through to participatory experiences and engagement and working with non-professionals, which is a big part of my practice. Um, I've been really fortunate to work with the Opera North Youth Chorus on two occasions, who are a phenomenal, phenomenal group of young people from a wide range of backgrounds, singing at a really high standard. And the project we did a couple of years ago, uh, we traveled to Denmark to work with Denisk Opera to create a piece called New Beginnings. So it's a collaborative project where we worked with a group called Talent U, who are similar to Opera North Youth Chorus in Denmark. And there was something about bringing these two groups together in Denmark. Um, the referendum had happened, you know, there was conversations about what that would mean, um, which is still ongoing. And this collaboration between two young, group, two young groups who hadn't met each other before, who were very similar, they were both really passionate about creating work and performing work. 
but bringing these two groups together and watching them kind of be slightly reticent of each other at first and try to understand each other and then them coming away from the end of that project being really close friends and having worked with Opera North Youth Chorus again recently having conversations with the young people they've still maintained those friendships so across borders in a different country um, creating work that was very much constructed by them in two different languages um, is exactly what opera is to me. And I constantly reflect on that experience about going, breaking down boundaries, breaking down borders, creating work with others and building up relationships. And to hear those young people say those relationships are still ongoing is what opera is to me. Um, so yeah, that's my, that's my moment. Well, a happy World Opera Day to, to one, one and all. Thank you for sharing those, uh, both of you. Congratulations to those receiving honours in the latest Queen's Honours list. Those recognised include John Mark Ainsley, Donald Runnicles, and Bill Banks-Jones, who was awarded the British Empire Medal. So congratulations to all of those. Our final news item for this month is the announcement that the Grange Festival are going to be presenting a theatrical production of Shakespeare's King Lear with a cast including John Tomlinson, Thomas Allen and Louise Alder, not singing but acting. Uh, now, Leah, there's been a bit of eyebrow raising over this announcement, but do we overlook the acting chops of, of singers? Are you actually able to act? I think the best singers are. There is this horrible kind of stereotype that opera singers just kind of, they park and bark, you sing and you you scream at people for three minutes and then you walk off stage and you're done. You go back to the opera, you go, you go back to your dressing room and take off your wig and that's it um and i think that in recent years people have been really trying to fight against that um because while acting and operas at times can take a much longer time to actually come to any resolution the storylines are a lot longer just simply because all of the emotion happens inside areas that are anywhere from three to ten minutes long um, that time is stretched in a way that a narrative can sometimes suffer from that. Um, but I do believe that f for that reason, we need to be even more confident in our acting skills and knowing how to channel a character, how to interact with others on stage. Um, and there's been even more of an emphasis on that in recent years of becoming more realistic and less m melodramatic when it comes to acting for opera and really bringing that acting right down to underneath your own skin and realizing actually how much that can then affect the audience and how much more that can affect the audience if they see themselves in you, if they see the way that they would react in the way that you react to, even if it's just a tiny bit of recitative or like one note or one word, like if you, they see the way that you at, react to that then they will identify with you and will be even more affected by it yeah i mean i think opera singers have a really really demanding job acting wise i mean you try having a six minute decapo aria where you're basically saying the same thing and making it engaging i mean i don't think benedict Cumberbatch could 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 do that so i mean hats off hats off to you singers find, finding things to do and finding ways to stay engaging uh when saying the same thing over and over again 
Before we go to our quiz, which I know is what Michael and Leah have been looking forward to all week, um, we're going to have our hidden gem. So this is an opera that uh, is uh, sadly maligned, but deserves a wider listen. And Leah, I asked if you would like to uh, propose a hidden gem for audiences this month. Sure thing. I mean, again, I had a bit of trouble trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to present to you all, because I have such a huge list of operas that I feel is so ill done by because not too many people know about them or if they are known about they're kind of looked at with the kind of holy cross of oh but it's contemporary uh like type thing so for me that would mean like Mark Antony Turnage's Greek for example even though that was just done a few years ago at Scottish Opera when you bring it up in a conversation with someone they they kind of get this look on their face of existential dread um and the same with um, Bert Whistle's Punch and Judy, which I absolutely love. And it's incredible when it comes to storytelling. But um, for me, what, what I think of when I think, okay, what's really off the beaten path when it comes to opera um, is an opera called Babel 46 by Javier Monsalvatier. Um Javier Monsalvatier was a Spanish composer that lived in the, well, mid-1900s and, and died in the early early 2000s it wrote a lot of art song and also a couple of our um a couple of operas um babel 46 is one of these two the other one is a version of puss in boots um which is an opera for children which is lovely um but babel 46 was originally written in the 1960s it wasn't performed until after he died in the early 2000s um it follows the story of a group of refugees waiting for their papers and that seems very kind of cuttingly timely at moments like this where the world seems like it's going mad um and alliances are made and broken and all of this in this one place this fictional tower of babel um what really makes this piece really wonderful to me is that it's written in many many languages the libretto's in i think six languages all of which Javier Monsalvatier spoke himself um catalonia and portuguese french and spanish and italian and english um are all spoken and sung in throughout this opera which is in four episodes and there's some spoken fragments in hebrew and german as well um and i just think it's absolutely gorgeous and more people should know about it And so finally, it is co-wiz time. Now, Michael and Leah, I don't know if you're familiar with the BBC game show House of Games. I don't know if this is something that you've come across. No? Okay, well, I'm going to try and explain. There's a, uh, a bit in that uh, program where they play a game called The Answer Smash. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two clues. Uh, the end of one clue leads into the beginning of the second clue. So I'll give you an example here. If I said... The American composer of Vanessa and a Rossini comedy, that would be the Samuel Barber of Seville. Samuel Barber, Barber of Seville. Okay. I would have got that one. Just in case I get zero, I would have got that one. <laughs> so that's how this works. The end of one answer is the beginning of the next answer. Um, I had great fun coming up with these. I mean, I, I spent far too much time doing this rather than actual work. Um, so this is something I'm sure we'll return to a future pod. I'll give you uh, one, uh, one go that you can kind of have a, have a, have a go at before we kind of get into it. Um, what we're going to do is that we're not going to take it in turns. This is going to be a buzz-in situation. We don't have buzzers, so 
make a noise if you think you know the answer. Um, if you call out and get it wrong, um, that's you done. It hands over to the next person. So here's the, uh, the test question, okay? So Bizet's civilian opera and a German composer whose operas were confined to his early years. Oh. Bizet opera, German composer. So it's Carmen. Uh, also. Carmen, yeah, but... All, all that's in my head is Carmen San Diego in the yeah, Me too, me too. I mean, I'd be a big fan of a Carmen San Diego opera. Same. Um, so I can tell you the, the answer to that one would have been uh, Bizet's civilian opera is Carmen and a German composer whose operas were confined to his early years was Mendelssohn. So that would have been Carmen Mendelssohn. Oh, okay. Okay, right, right. Got there's, it. Okay. there's your test one. So if you know the answer, shout out. There are five, so first to three wins. Okie doke. Off we go. The oldest opera house in Europe, found in Naples, and one of the great Italian tenors. Domingo, 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 uh, 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 no. <laughs> Domingo Pavarotti. Uh. <laughs> uh. No, I'm going to hurry you both. No. Uh, no. I have the Naple Opera House, Teatro San Carlo, Italian tenor, Carlo Bergonzi. That was the Teatro San Carlo Bergonzi. Okay. Moving on to question two, which should be a bit easier. <laughs> Powerhouse Italian composer with a Batti operetta. Uh, can you say the question again, David? A powerhouse Italian composer with a Batti operetta. Italian composer, Batti operetta. Uh, Verdi di Fledermouse? No? Yes, that was Giuseppe Verdi Fledermaus. Ah, uh, okay. Leah, Leah, Leah helped me with that one. <laughs> We're warming up. One, one to Michael. Um, <laughs> next, a famous castrato with a foodie Australian soprano. A famous castrato and then a Australian soprano uh, with a foodie connection. I'm awful with opera singer names. It's, it's really bad. <laughs> Well, the, was the not Alessandro Moreschi? It's not who I'm looking for. Hmm. Gonna hurry you both. <laughs> the castrato I was looking for was Farinelli. The Australian soprano with a foodie link was Nelly Melba, so that was Farinelli Melba. Verdi's Zaragothan drama with Bizet's Bullfighter. Oh no. Um, uh, oh no, my mind's totally gone blank. Ah, oh, this is awful. <laughs> I know, this is terrifying. <laughs> I do think I said this last time on the podcast, which is anyone who might employ me in the future, do not employ me on, <laughs> based on this quiz results. <laughs> I will say that again. <laughs> A Verdi opera set in Zaragoza combined with Bizet's Bullfighter. Why can't I remember the Bullfighter's name? Um, uh... Uh, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on. So that was Il yeah. Trovatore, Tore, Tore, yeah. and I was looking for the Toreador. So that was Il Trovatore <laughs> Okay. These are harder than you think, David. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so Michael has a one 0 lead going into the final question. So draw. So this is a Babylonian king crossed with a Japanese bride. Bride. Oh, okay. I was like thinking about roller coasters for a second. Uh. <laughs> so another big old Verdi opera with a Babylonian king crossed with a Japanese bride. 
Nabucco. Yeah. Oh. Butterfly. Uh, Nabucco's. I'm trying to remember the plot of Madam Butterfly. <laughs> if you if you think of the end of Nabucco, we're then going into a character's name. Nabucco Zuki. Suzuki. No. No, I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna call it a day. We're looking for Nabucco. And the lead character of Madam Butterfly, Coco-san. So that was Nabucco Coco. Oh, of course. Oh, oh. Dear me. Well, I enjoyed the quiz, if no one else did. <laughs> no, that was good. It's hard. I think because you, you get so much, like, really specific information that it really makes you rack your brain. And then yeah. your brain just goes, it, no. <laughs> it's the classic one as well, where you just decide you know what one of the answers is. And it can't be anything else. Yeah. Um, well, good. Well, thank you for being my my play things in the quiz this month. Michael wins <laughs> one nil, so congratulations, Michael. Congrats, Michael. <laughs> Helps a lot, I... Leah. There. Um, this will return. So, if any future panelists are listening, it's time to gen up on your answer smash. Um, but congratulations, Michael, for the one nil victory. <laughs> a a crushing win there. Um, <laughs> That's all we have time for on this month's OperaCast. A huge thank you to Michael for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. And a wonderful pod debut from Leah Shaw. We'll have you back in the future. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. This was great fun. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next month. Goodbye. <laughs>